Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. David Dusenberry is back after discussing with us last year his book, The Innocence of Pontius Pilate. He is now senior fellow at the Danube Institute in Budapest, and his new book is I Judge No One, A Political Life of Jesus. Uh, welcome, welcome, David. Welcome back. Thanks so much. Let's start with a certain uh, political interpretation of Jesus from long ago that you bring up. Who was Herman Samuel, and I, I am, am I pronouncing his last name right, Rymos? Uh, Rymaros, yeah. Rymaros. And what was his contention about Jesus? Well, this is an excellent, excellent place to start. So Rymaros is a fascinating character. There's no disputing the fact that he was a very, a very serious uh, scholar of uh, ancient Israelite history and um, kind of... Um, Oriental studies, so he made significant contributions, extremely knowledgeable guy, and in the 1760s he started to keep some secret notebooks, and one of the notebooks he kept was on the goal of Jesus and his disciples. This is what he titled uh, this particular notebook, and he basically revisited the entire question of what the Gospels are and who Jesus was, and he came to two rather startling, well, highly contentious um, conclusions, which really kind of kicked off, Mark, the whole quest for the historical Jesus. So in, in some ways, mm -hmm. he's the, the uh, originator of that whole tradition. So uh, the two conclusions he came to, first was that the Gospels are not really composed to tell us who Jesus was, rather they're composed to disguise <laughs> who Jesus was. And Rymaris mm -hmm. concluded that they didn't actually do such a good job because he was able to see through the, uh, through the ruse. And then the second conclusion is that Jesus was really a kind of straightforwardly uh, political rebel. Um, he was an insurgent, and he intended and tried to sort of uh, seize uh, military control of the Temple Mount, which was the very center of uh, first century Jerusalem, or arguably still is today. Um, and he was very quickly seized by the Romans and, and put to death as, as such. Um, so the story of uh, uh, Jesus objecting to the to the moneylenders was was sort of a, a a cloak for what was really going on. Is that the contention? Exactly. So he would see this both as revealing that um, this this act of kind of disturbance in the temple shows us what Jesus was really about, and at the same time, it's an act of concealing by the gospel writers trying to repress the memory of uh, his true mission. You turn next to another thinker, better known to everyone, uh, Immanuel Kant. You contrast uh, Ramaris's version with Kant's political Jesus. Uh, what does that 
that uh, Königsberg philosopher contend? So Kant uh, was acquainted with Reimarus, so they moved in similar circles. And um, he uh, comments on Reimarus in, in one of his texts, which is very famous. But strangely enough, as things happen, no one really pays attention to what Kant says about the, the, this founder of the quest for the historical Jesus. So I try to draw that out. And he makes a number of interesting arguments, Mark, but I think the, the simplest to put forward here is that Kant tries to argue that there is a, a meaningful sense in which um, Jesus' mission ends in a kind of failure. I mean, uh, the death of a martyr is certainly an extremely difficult um, uh, conclusion to any prophetic ministry. Um, so he tries to draw a, a distinction, though, between this sort of failure and a much more profound moral victory, which he sees Jesus as accomplishing by setting a pattern for, for all of humanity, what it means to, uh, to offer your life. Uh, for the good and, and for others. Yeah. Now, you enter into this argument about the political Jesus with a bit of uh, a warning that when we look at Jesus politically, we must be careful not to reduce Jesus to his historical moment and setting, and that that will exhaust, somehow we will, we will exhaust the meaning of Jesus simply by looking at, at, at specific historical context, correct? That's absolutely correct. What is the, what is the danger of doing that? What, what is lost if we, if we get too, what, historicistic, too historical about, uh, about Jesus? Well, I think um, what stands out most to me um, when I read the Gospels, um, as something of a historian of ideas, um, is that so many of his claims don't seem to have very straightforward um, antecedents, either in his own milieu or, or even in the, the greater traditions within which he stands, of uh, kind of Hellenistic Judaism, uh, Israelite prophecy. Now, I, I'm speaking very crudely here, so you know all of these sure, things need sure. to be uh, finessed. But but the, something seems to be happening. To put it really bluntly, something seems to be happening in the Gospels, which is really not anticipated. And um, I think it's with with reason that that whatever is occurring there was not foreseen by those who were in Jesus' innermost circle. And um, and then when you compare this kind of uh, what I call the strangeness of Jesus um, in the book, when you compare that with his death, you see that, in fact, it is not surprising for someone um, who stands out in the ways he seems to stand out from his uh, various contexts, that he would, that he would attract um, attention and come to a difficult, uh, a difficult end. Uh, or rather, I should say, you know, the natural life of Jesus uh, ends in a very difficult way. Yeah. Now, there, there's an issue with looking at Jesus as a political philosopher, or even as a political philosopher might look at Jesus, and you note that there is no mention of philosophy in the Gospels. Well, what do you take as the significance of that? Well, on the one hand, I do point out um, that it's, it's at least worth noting that Jesus is compared to a philosopher in the Gospel of Thomas, which, of course, is not canonical, um, but it is an early Christian text. It's also worth noting, as I don't in the book, that even though Jesus is compared uh, to a philosopher in that passage, ultimately everyone agrees in that passage that he's more than a philosopher. So this is not 
even in the Gospel of Thomas, this idea of Jesus being a philosopher is not exhausted. It's just the start of an interesting conversation. Um, but I think once you bear in mind that philosophy is really kind of the common coinage of the day in the first century, that the Gospel writers wanted the figure of Jesus to be communicable in philosophical contexts, then you begin to pay special attention to a number of sayings in which, you know, Sophia, wisdom, is, is very prominent. Um, right. And, uh, and you, 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 you track very nicely uh, a precursor figures from, from pagan philosophy and how they come through in, in Jesus's, in, in, the, in, the, in the Gospels as well. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, from the very beginning of the Christian era, people both within the church and outside the church noted certain parallels between the death of Socrates and Jesus, for instance. Um, and I'm trying, among other things, to remind us of that fact, because this is not such a prominent um, kind of talking point when we think about Jesus today. Yeah. You, you, you actually, uh, I, I, I think it's when you're referring to the death of Socrates and the suicide. You note that in John's Gospel, when Jesus hints that he will soon die, quote, I am going away, hmm. the, 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 the disciples wonder, wait, is, is he planning to, to kill himself? Uh, is, is, I mean, what, what, is, what, is, what does he think is going to happen here? And you actually ask a question, does Jesus, what, what does Jesus want to have happen to him? How, how, do you, how do you answer that question? Well, to some extent, I know this sounds incredibly evasive, but to some extent, Mark, the book doesn't take a definitive position on that. It, it, it is trying really to remind all readers of the Gospels, uh, d devout and not at all quite skeptical, um, that an extraordinarily complex and rich and um, suggestive picture of Jesus emerges from these four texts, which the Church has decided um, are authoritative. And um, so to some extent, I, I try to preserve the complexity of that picture more than necessarily asserting a strong uh, position. Um, but I suppose I do find really intriguing, kind of getting back to, to Kant's um, idea that more than one thing is happening when Jesus dies. Um, so similarly, when you read the Gospels with some of the questions in mind that I bring to them, you see that Jesus has more than one feeling, um, or he seems to have more than one feeling about the Passion. There are aspects of it which he seems uh, entirely at peace with, and yeah. um, he goes into his Passion willingly, as I think the liturgy says. Um, and this is very strongly noted in John. Um, but there are other aspects of the passion which seem to trouble him deeply. He says his, his, heart, is, his heart is sorrowful unto death, and so on and so forth. And th this yeah. is a, a kind of distinct aspect of the passion which comes through differently in, in the whole collection of Gospels. You know, that was a, a striking fact to Nietzsche, wasn't it? That, well, first of all, that, that maybe, maybe the two most prominent uh, thinkers, in, in a sense— in, in, in Western tradition, were both condemned and, and put to death. You know, Socrates, of course, ch ch chooses it. How did Nietzsche interpret Jesus' Jesus's death? So, yes, so Nietzsche really does, as you say, pay more attention to these, these two figures in connection than a lot of philosophers do. The, the, the late George Steiner wrote some really beautiful stuff on, on these two deaths as well, which I owe a, a great debt to. But Nietzsche basically uh, seems to think that, that Socrates had had enough of life 
and he was deeply sick and uh, decadent um, in Nietzsche's eyes, and thus he wanted some sort of way out, and, and his trial provided him with that. Hmm. According to Nietzsche, Jesus had a much more positive objective, and that was to demonstrate by his death that his teachings on, on love and mercy were genuine, and that uh, he could love his enemies as he enjoined his followers to do. You cite another philosopher, the mid-century French existentialist phenomenologist uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, who states that the crucifixion was, in fact, an episode in which God, quote-unquote, abandoned man. Uh, why have you forsaken me? Mm. That, that's how he in, in interprets it. What do you think of Merleau-Ponty's take on that? Well, I certainly think it is, um, it's useful to open up a certain line of questioning, which is why I use it to open you know, this chapter of the book. Um, but among other things, I think it is useful to remind us, which is kind of what I do in that chapter, that um, certain modern ways of seeing the Gospels are quite different from ancient ways. And so Merleau-Ponty, as a right. modern philosopher, sees something kind of very intriguing and positive in this moment, what he regards as a moment of desolation um, on the cross when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, but then I try to show that ancient philosophers had different questions and different problems when they read this passage. And um, I would certainly say that Merleau-Ponty's reading um, invites thought and is worthy of uh, you know, reflection, but it's, it's, not, um, it's not exhaustive. Yeah. You actually go, it's nice the way you bring up figures like Tacitus and Suetonius and how they spoke that the news of Jesus's death did circulate through the pagan and non-Christian uh, mm. writers. How was this event described and understood by some of those figures? Well, um, most of the texts I discuss in the, the, this chapter, Mark, are relatively well known, but one kind of new argument I bring to them, I try to show that in uh, Jewish circles, Christian circles, pagan circles, um, that there were different opinions formed of the, the passion quite early on. And there mm -hmm. are sort of positive traditions and negative traditions in each of the, well, I, I, I actually not, not so much uh, Christian, um, but uh, both in pagan and Jewish circles, um, there are kind of positive and negative traditions which emerge within the first couple of centuries of his death. Um, so one of the kind of more obscure sources I turn to is uh, fragments from the pagan gods themselves, which we owe to Eusebius and Augustine of Hippo. Some of these church fathers wrote down um, uh, so-called oracles from the gods about the death of Jesus. And we see that different gods um, seem to have regarded him as a supremely righteous and wise man in, in one instance, and um, a kind of criminal who uh, came to an, a fittingly bad end uh, on another uh, hmm. hand. No. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. 
Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, when you start turning to your own uh, discussion of the, the political Jesus, you say that a political understanding of Jesus' life begins really with the setting of Roman Judea. What is the political situation in Jerusalem, Judea, after the conquest by, by Pompey in, what, 60 B.C.? So, I mean, the first point to make is that it's just incredibly complicated, and, and it's important for modern readers of the Gospels to remember this fact. Um, and, and I think the Gospel writers do a rather good job of reminding us themselves, right? I mean, the Passion is this hugely complicated drama. You have a Sanhedrin courts and a Roman courts, and you have Herod show up in the Gospel of Luke, and so on and so forth. So um, it, it is presented to us as a complex uh, kind of jurisdictional landscape, but basically, um, Judea was a Roman province, so it was governed by a prefect who lived in Caesarea, not in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But the high priest in Jerusalem had a certain amount of kind of direct authority within the holy city. And even to this day, Mark, historians can't really agree on how much uh, authority the high priest would have had in Jerusalem. And then mm -hmm. you add to this the fact that Galilee, which is where Jesus uh, was coming from, um, Galilee was not a Roman province. It was governed by a Herodian dynast. And so it had a distinct legal system and a, a, a distinct status within the empire. Um, which means that Jesus, when he's in Jerusalem, he's not only not a Roman citizen like Paul was in the middle of the first century, but he's also not someone who belongs by law to the province of Judea. He belongs to Galilee. Hmm. And that all right, complicates his case, his, 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 his legal status when he's declared, when he's declared a, a, a criminal who must, who must be punished. Mm. This comes, I mean, I mean we, we, should, we should read these facts, we should keep these facts in mind when we examine the treatment of Jesus from, from the time of his arrest forward. You mentioned uh, the high priest in, in Jerusalem, who, who had Caiaphas leads for 20 years. Hmm. What is his power? You, you mentioned there, there's, there's controversy over it, but generally, what is his power in Jerusalem, especially with, with Pilate in another city? So the, um, I think a, a kind of safe conclusion to reach is twofold. One, no one disputes that within the temple precincts themselves, or yeah, themselves or itself, um, there was a right to put to death Gentiles who entered, who, who went further into the temple than the court of the Gentiles. So this is attested mm -hmm. by a number of uh, historians, and um, but. The question then becomes, outside of the temple, what is the high priest's authority? And I think a, a conclusion we can uh, basically arrive at, which is how I put it in the book, is that the high priest seems to have had a lot of de facto authority in Jerusalem, but not necessarily de jure. So he could make certain things happen, but it wasn't necessarily strictly 
legal. And, and, mm. and then um, it, on a kind of case-by-case -case basis, the prefect might kind of uh, permit it or not, uh, depending on how he felt about things. Well, that, that gets us to Pilate's relationship to the Jews uh, at that time in the other town. Uh, what was the condition of that relationship? Well, Mark, it seems to have been quite tense throughout his tenure, and it's actually ultimately a clash which leads to, uh, to Pontius Pilate being recalled to Rome, which is where we, we lose track of him um, in roughly the year 37. But even in the Gospels, uh, we, we see that there's, there's quite a bit of tension uh, between what he regards as his jurisdiction, his legal system, and um, that of the, the temple authorities. So mm -hmm. um, various scholars read first century texts differently, but I tend to see actually quite a lot of continuity between the Jewish sources we have, Philo and Josephus, and the Gospels. They, to my mind, represent a, a, a recognizably similar picture of uh, Pilate's uh, kind of tense relationship with the, the temple authorities. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned the three Jewish groups in, in Jerusalem. What is the relationship between the, the Pharisees and, and the other two? Well, the Essenes are an outlier because they really, by conviction, uh, stayed in the desert. And this is one of the things which separates Jesus from the Essenes, is that he went to the temple. He uh, participated in the temple cultus, which the Essenes refused to do. Um, but yes, so the, the Sadducees were basically, you know, the ruling elite, and the Pharisees were sort of more the petty bourgeois, kind of uh, middle class, devout. And what I try to show, getting back to what I called earlier the strangeness of Jesus, is that Jesus has certain points in common with each of these groups, and yet he doesn't ultimately belong to any of them. And this is, of course, what exposes him uh, to great danger. Um, and we do see in the Gospels not only the, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, but also the Herodians are involved in the process of uh, bringing him to trial. Hmm. And though the Gospels don't mention them, who were the Zealots? Well, this is, this is a, a really difficult question, but um, I'll, I'll try to keep my answer simple and brief. The Zealots seem to have been a particularly radical group or set of groups um, which date back to the, the very first years of the Christian era. There was a tax revolt um, headed by someone named Judas um, in, in Galilee. And um, there was kind of a simmering resistance to Rome throughout Jesus' lifetime. It's debated how hot that was. And, um, and then in the 60s, it really kicks off again, leading to the destruction of, uh, of the temple. Um, but the Zealots were those who believed that um, the presence of any uh, Gentile culture or any Roman governance in the land of Israel was... Uh, by definition, illegitimate and should be resisted by military means. How do these tensions shape the, the meaning, in your eyes, of Jesus' command, love your enemy? That there may be something a little more particular, not just a universal meaning to that statement, correct? Yes, well, he's definitely, I mean, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, he is um, clearly speaking not only to, but primarily to, in the first instance, his, uh, his fellow Israelites. Um, so it's quite interesting, Mark, that in, in the God Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he refers specifically to Gentiles, and um, he's not speaking there 
to Gentiles. Uh, so um, even though his, his message clearly pertains to them. So I do think there is, um, there would have been heard at the time a, um, a kind of uh, clear injunction not to adopt the mentality of the zealots. Of course, he talks about, you know, if someone forces you to carry a burden, right? This is a clear reference to a Roman practice, um, and Jesus did not encourage his hearers to, to behave in the way the zealots um, urged them to. So it seems yeah. to me that he's a consistently, he is, he is zealous in a certain sense, which we see in the, the um, temple in the action, for instance, or action in the temple, forgive me. Um, the temple action is the German I was thinking of. Uh, so mm -hmm. when, he, when he creates a disturbance in the temple, his zeal is shown. And yet I would argue that throughout his life, he takes um, positions which are antithetical to, to the zealots. When, in, in light of all these tensions and, and, and the different groups, is Pilate a little confused at first about, about who Jesus is? What is, the, what is the background here? Why has this conflict uh, broken out? This seems to me actually one of the, the most uh, striking aspects of uh, Pilate's portrayal in, in the Gospels, and I do try to show that it's not only Pilate. I mean, I think there's a certain confusion we see in the Sanhedrin trial as well. Um, but Pilate especially seems to be unconvinced that um, Jesus fits neatly within the kind of Roman legal categories that he's um, thinking in. Um, and what I also try to show in both books, though, The Innocence of Pontius Pilate and this book, is that even though he's a bit skeptical that Jesus is a, a, a Roman... Um, a Roman criminal, he nevertheless, in the end, is perfectly happy to put him to death, which is, of course, exactly what occurs. So his hesitancy is exactly the result of what you call confusion, rather than some sort of um, uh, sympathy or um, kind of uh, fellow feeling. Right, right. And is you you do talk about his interrogation and Jesus's diffidence, or or his his often. Silence. Uh, is that is that related to? I mean, how, how would you see that, David? I mean, is that is that Jesus? I am not going to get into all of these tensions and conflicts and power competitions with this Roman. Is is that is that is that too simplistic? Well, I think um, one of the things that's really uh, dawned on me, you would think it would be much discussed, um, Mark, but it's, it's actually not so often discussed. And that is the, the title under which Jesus is crucified, namely King of the Judeans, is a very specific title. And it is a title that Rome bestowed on Herod the Great um, shortly before Jesus was born. And it had fallen into abeyance at the time uh, Jesus was alive. So no one was king of the Judeans when Jesus was put to death. The, the, the title kind of reappears briefly in the, in the 40s of our era. But the point I'm making is this. Um, I think part of Jesus' reticence is that he was acclaimed as and um, hailed as the king of Israel. And yet he was not a claimant to this Herodian title. And so I think... Part of his silence 
is a reluctance to either affirm or deny that this mm. politically charged Roman title really described who he was. And, um, and that reluctance, in turn, uh, left Pilate actually very little to work with in, his, uh, in the course of the trial. Yeah. Much more in the book, lots of references to those graduate students in theology uh, out, out there doing, we're, we're working uh, on your own research projects. For now, the title is I Judge No One, A Political Life of Jesus. David Dusenberry, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.